Greetings all and welcome to Margin Call, the podcast and editorial meeting for Quest On Media. I'm your host, Russell Morse. We've got an open editorial meeting today and people have come with the heat, including stories about Japanese cholos, cocaine hippos, and an executive order on artificial intelligence. If that sounds crazy or like science fiction, uh, you're not alone. I don't blame you. Uh, But these are all news items uh, from the past week or so. I couldn't even contain myself. Like when we were talking before the show, I I couldn't stop talking about this New York Times video uh, featuring... Japanese, I mean, I guess, is that the phrase they're using? Japanese cholos? If people haven't seen it, for our listeners, please. First of all, I suspect that New York Times is trying to bury it because Melanie and I right now just tried to Google it and couldn't find it. Um, But the New York Times posted a video about um, what they call Japan's Chicano subculture. Melanie, I want to bring you in because... Uh, you mentioned this in the email thread. Um, as soon as you mentioned it, I said, yes, this is the first thing we need to talk about. I don't care about Michael Cohen testifying about the president. <laughs> that can wait. We need to talk about Japan's Chicano subculture right now. Uh, so I know why I thought we should talk about it. Mel, What? why did this grab your attention? Well, okay, so it caught my attention, just pulled, you know, came up on my YouTube algorithm. Um, it was published about a week ago in the New York Times, and I was like, oh, cool, Japanese Chicanos, never seen that. Um, and I thought it was relevant for our group because, you know, you guys are all from California, where Chicano (laughs) culture is based. Um, I mean, I'm not Chicana, but I definitely felt like when I was living in California, I kind of became obsessed with it too in in a certain way to be a part of it. So I can see why Japanese folks would would see it and be like, yeah, you know, we have our fast cars here that we like to do drag racing with. And so maybe they saw those similarities. You know, some of the YouTube comments I thought were really funny. One of my favorite pastimes because they're just always so hilarious and random. But a lot of uh, Chicanos themselves wrote that they were flattered by um by this copying and um and that they're not going to call it cultural appropriate appropriation they feel like this is an honoring of who they are um but i can see how there's a lot of people who would be like what the fuck is this we've had a lot of conversations over the past decade or so about cultural appropriation you know around like halloween costumes you know there's this whole campaign like my culture is not your costume and then you know when the met gala had the theme merch you know rihanna showed up like dressed like the pope or whatever i was like well okay how about this you know what what culture is appropriate for appropriation uh so i was thinking of the story in that context right initially my first wave was like wow it's weird to kind of dress up as another race (laughs) right like that's that's weird you know and i wasn't necessarily like personally offended then i went through different levels where i was like well i actually am mexican-american um you're too mexican for america but you're too american for mexico you know but and even i would be like i wouldn't dress like a cholo because that's fake because you know what i'm saying (laughs) i'm like if you're not really from that life i mean it used to be such a signifier of a lifestyle 
um, and this is a lot about a kind of generational change, a thing that I think and talk about a lot. It's going to relate to Drake. I know I always talk about Drake on here, but I won't miss any opportunity. You know what I mean? Like you're performing, you're acting as if you're like this person. Nothing about you is authentic. And my memory of like, you know, famous rappers from the 90s when I was growing up is that like everything was about authenticity. There were more recent examples than that. You know, Vanilla Ice is an extreme example, but there was a real... You know, 20 years ago or longer, there was a real fixation on authenticity. Like, if you're going to talk about something, you react a certain way, you got to really be about it. You know, that's problematic, too. But that was my next level of response to this, which was like when I was a kid growing up in San Francisco, like if you dressed that way, that meant something like that meant you were from somewhere that meant you lived a certain lifestyle. You know what I'm saying? Like there are a lot of associations with that. And if you like I mean, we kind of like the worst thing you could do is like appropriate. And I mean, we, we weren't talking. It wasn't it wasn't academic for us. We weren't talking about cultural appropriation or what was politically correct. It was just like, you're not from that. Like you're a fake ass bitch. You know, those were the we didn't say cultural appropriation. We said fake ass bitch. Um, <laughs> was, I think I like fake ass bitch. Is a bit better. Um, but. I think kind of like what you're saying, Melanie, and similar to what people are saying in the comments, it's like, you know, a, a lot of that stuff, especially the cars, you know, and, and we'll put a link up to, to the video to run along with the podcast so people can check it out for themselves. Like, and, you know, and it's sad girl, sad girl. Mona's yeah, sad. it's like them talking in Spanish that freaked me out, you know, like, <laughs> and, and then I have to like kind of check myself and be like, oh, why is that weird to me? You know what I'm saying? Like people all over the world speak all kinds of languages, but like they were introducing themselves in Spanish. And the names that they came up with, like Sad Girl, obviously, like that's a name everybody knows. Like if you saw Mi Vida Loca, like you know that there's a Sad Girl and a Mouse. Yeah, Sad Girl, Mona is Sad Girl, Dial, and Night the Funkster. That was the one I liked. <laughs> it's comical. I mean, it made, it's it like, made me laugh. Yeah, when I saw it, I was like, yeah. what the hell? Yeah. I'm relieved to hear. I'm glad I looked at the comments and I'm glad that you mentioned it, Melanie, because it does like people make good points, especially like Chicano people on this comment thread, especially the first guy, because he says at first I'll admit it was weird seeing Japanese people trying to act like what I grew up around being a Mexican in Chicago. But then I remember liking anime and Japanese food and I realized it's okay to share cultures and I shouldn't be a hypocrite, Uh, which I feel like, you know, those are different things liking anime and naming yourself sad girl and putting on crazy eye makeup, you know, (laughs) Is different. I'm reading this book right now about a tribe called Quest. And, you know, I read something in there about, you know, how they sampled this band, Little Feet, which was like a very obscure rock band from the, you know, 70s and 80s. You know, I mean, that's that's what people love about hip hop, right? Is that they take different things from different cultures uh, and mash it up, mash up culture. You know, Mm -hmm. so we can't if we're too distinct, if we're like, you can only dress like where you're from or what you are, or you can only listen to the music that, you know, that you grew up with. If we're too rigid, right, that restricts culture. So sometimes when we talk about cultural appropriation, I like try to insert that. But this guy is saying it in a better way than I ever could. Still weird, though. It is very weird. But what I what I thought was the emotional twist of this piece was the part where sad girl says that Chicano culture taught her about um, how to respect her family and about love. And I was just like, damn, (laughs) you know? And she also said that 
you know, she was in a group of girls, like there were a group of girl singers all dressed this way, but she's the only one left. The rest of them have already dropped to the fad. And, um, and she says that she thinks it's going to disappear, that it's just like a passing fad that's not going to stick. I mean, there are there's a music video I really liked from years ago that was like a mini documentary about guys, mostly men in Japan that were really into like American greaser culture, you know, like slicking their hair back and all that. And the video was like watching them get ready in the morning and then they had their own way of dancing and they would like battle dance each other. I mean, there's it seems, you know. Based on my observation, there are so many of these obscure, intense subcultures in Japan. Right. Uh, they, they even mention a Rastafarian subculture in Japan as well. Like, wow. When you look at the YouTube, yeah, the, the YouTube <laughs> comments. <laughs> I mean, it mentions a ton of them and that this is just part of it. Like one person wrote, it's Japanese have a strong sense of identity dysphoria that seems to really play up the extremes. And then um, another person was just like, yeah, Japanese are like the biggest hipsters in the world. They're <laughs> always like taking everything to the extreme. Yeah. yeah. But like the cool aspects of being a hipster, like being really serious and fixated on a culture. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, whatever, even if, even if that subculture is indie rock or whatever, or like being an audiophile or something. I, I think there's something to be said for that, especially in an era where like an Instagram culture where like every day, you know, like kids go to Coachella and they're like, yo, today I'm dressing up like a bohemian. I have a flower crown and I'm like a bohemian girl or whatever. But it's like, that's just your identity for the day. You know, I think there's something to be said for having an identity for your life in an age where, there's less and less of that, in my opinion. I also think, I mean, not to get like too anthropological about it, and I'm sure I'm not the first person to make Why this. Why not? Art. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm just, just go well, there. Just, you know you want just to. Because just because I'm, I'm not an anthropologist, but like you know, if yes, you, you think, are. If Come you on. think just about, just fake it till you every, make it, Russell. Thank every you. Every writer is a bit of an anthropologist. Wow. Whether, I, whether they a, studied it or not. I'm really touched by the outpouring of this support <laughs> right now. I'm, I'm going to go for it. Well, as a doctor of anthropology. <laughs> and a japanese historian uh you know this was such one of the most insular cultures in the world for so long like they partly because they're an island nation and also just because of their internal politics they fought any kind of outsiders off like if people wanted to come trade even up into the 19th century you know there were only certain people that were designated to like meet with outsiders or whatever and they were all about preserving their internal culture like obsessively, even into the age of, you know, global navigation where people were exchanging ideas all over the place. Um, And then once they finally opened themselves up to the world, it was in the most, you know, dramatic way. Uh, And it makes sense. You know, I think people use a lot like, you know, Japan is like a punchline sometimes because they do stuff like this all the time, especially like crazy fashion stuff. But it's always cool. Like it's always well done. You know what yeah, I mean? Like I when you agree. look at these guys, like those cars look excellent. It's not just they kind of like, really it's not yeah. a janky approximation of what they think it should be. It's like the best version of that thing uh, all the way down to the fashion. Uh, and I'm, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm glad to hear people uh, giving it room and maybe not being so reactionary about the, the appropriation aspect. But go ahead, Mel. 
Well, I was just going to say, I mean, we can become just as obsessed as Americans with Japanese culture, right? Like, so you mentioned Japanese animation earlier, but I actually started watching that show on Netflix with Marie Kondo. Oh, yeah. Is, <laughs> I know. What? I know. <laughs> I, know. I know. I know. I don't know. I mean, I know the show exists, but I don't understand why <laughs> so there's such a I... strong negative response to it. <laughs> Because she's really, really happy. Cleaning is triggering, and I time. don't like doing it. <laughs> yeah, but but here's here's the point that I'm I'm trying to make though, because I I only just heard about her recently because um, someone keeps calling our web redesigners at the organization where I work the Marie Kondo of web nice. web designers, whatever. Nice. And so in the show, I started watching it. She she shows up and she's just very Japanese in these very American like hoarder type um, of houses and just the idea of Japanese minimalism coming into this hoarder consumerist like oh huge she comes in and she's just like oh it's just all so American you know and she barely speaks English too she speaks Japanese most of the show and she has a translator and like she actually teaches Americans how to appreciate what they have like she'll go in and she'll like get on her knees and thank the house and thank all the items in the house in this very spiritual Japanese way (laughs) and and the Americans all stand there with their eyes huge and just like what's happening right now you know but in the end of every episode they're just obsessed with the Japanese way of doing everything from the way of that they fold their clothes and organize everything. And so um, I think it just really goes both ways. Like we're fascinated with what we don't know. Hmm. I agree. I mean, I think about that, um, you know, if if you uh, like Wu-Tang Clan, for instance, that's not Japanese, but that's Chinese. But the idea of like being fixated on the East and the exoticism of the East and martial arts, you know, that's it's not an accident that, you know, those nine black guys from Staten Island uh, became obsessed with martial arts and the culture of the East you know, there were movies on on a television station in New York City, you know, from China, those old uh, Kung Fu movies. And that, yeah. you know, that's the kind of thing. It's a very early example of what, you know, these guys in Japan probably did, which is they, you know, they found a website of a lowrider show or something. And they were like, yo, this is tight. Kept digging. Um, right. But getting exposed to other cultures and appreciating um, the way other people do things like that's pretty tight. You know, yeah. that's that's helping us to become better versions of ourselves in a lot of ways, you know. I know. And I mean, you, you bring up martial arts and it immediately made me think of the other day. I had no idea that um, Colombia had its own martial arts. Did you? Uh, I don't know. I don't think I knew that. <laughs> it makes but sense. The only reason it, it's yeah. And it's it's kind of like capoeira, but with yeah. machetes and it's called grima. <laughs> And and so then you think of like Haitian machete, um, like rituals that they do. And so it's all based in slave culture. So it's just, I don't know, I just think the world's right. an amazing place. And so like we've picked up different things from different places depending on the migrations of people. And now the internet is basically taking 
all the travel that you have to do to to see that um, out of the equation. I, you know, there's much more to explore, but I'm just itching to talk about um, cocaine hippos. Uh, so uh, so what, this is a report. This uh... is a report that, that came to us from our own Paul Billingsley, uh, editor at large, contributor at large. Um, when he's on the show, he's great. And he wasn't able to make it tonight, but he did give us this wonderful gift. He said, guys, you got to talk about the cocaine hippos. And he sent us a link to uh, this story. I mean, this is this story is all over the place. Uh, but this this specific one is from National Geographic. Uh, so the headline in National Geographic reads, could Pablo Escobar's escaped hippos help the environment? I mean, do you need to read anymore? Is that not enough? <laughs> Uh, some scientists think Colombia's quote cocaine hippos could help fill in for long extinct megafauna, while others argue that they should go. Pablo Escobar apparently was a pretty extravagant guy, uh, and he had a lot of pets, including uh, his own personal zoo that had a lot of African animals. Obviously, he lived in Colombia, um, but his animals. A lot of them were are only found elsewhere in the world in Africa. You know, he had giraffes, uh, but the hippos are the real problem because they escaped, uh, and they've been a successful species in Colombia, even though they're not native to Colombia, and people don't really know how to navigate this. So I think at first people thought, you know, uh, if you introduce a species like that, it can be really disruptive. But now they're saying uh, there's no reason to relocate them or, you know, a lot of people are saying we should sterilize the hippos. Uh, but they're saying hippos now are taking the place of species that humans pushed to extinction thousands of years ago. Uh, so it's just kind of like a happy accident. Pablo becomes one of the richest people in the world selling cocaine. He has some pet hippos. The hippos escape. uh, And now they're helping to even things out. If that doesn't help you to believe in the power of nature um, or or karma or like evidence of, uh, you know, a divine intelligence, I don't I don't know what does. I'm watching the video now. Well, first of all, Paul, go ahead. Paul also, well, uh, I think this may have been, he, he was referencing whatever story you sent, but he was saying that, you know, it was like five uh, hippos um, because there's no um, animal that it, there that can like hunt them or, you know, feed off them. They kind of multiply. And now they're like everywhere and they're like in the streets. They're like attacking people. So now it's like an hippos issue. Hippos are not in the that's, streets. That's what he said. That's what he hippos told me. Hippos are that's not what he in told the streets. That's what he told me. I'm just repeating what he said to me this morning. <laughs> um, as I was eating my mandarin orange. So like <laughs> that's what he said. Um, he said that, that it's become an issue that they're like attacking people and they're everywhere and there's no like predator. There we go. That can... Um, um, deal with this issue. Paul's. Yeah, I mean, much of the article is about that, right? Some people are saying that like, this could be good for our ecology here because it levels out um, the problems that were created by species that went extinct a long time ago. And then other people that are like, hey, we can't have hippos running in the streets asking people for change <laughs> um, <laughs> or whatever, whatever your imagination is about where, where they appear. But they are they've been a successful species. 
and of course, the phrase cocaine hippos is so good that I think that a lot of other news outlets have jumped on it just so they can use that phrase, including us. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let me look at the one uh, the one that Paul sent, because that's not the national. It's a more recent one. Mm-hmm. Um, CBS. Yeah, that's what I thought. It was a CBS news one. <laughs> Yeah, Pablo Escobar's hippos keep multiplying and Colombia doesn't know how to stop it. Fishing villages, small boats, and children at play dot the landscape along the shallow waterways of Colombia's Magdalena River. But an invasive species left behind by one of the country's most infamous figures is threatening the ecosystem and possibly a way of life. (laughs) It's gripping stuff. Uh, I mean, I've heard of, you know, the, the example we always think of is like, you know, somebody flushes a pet alligator down the uh down the toilet or whatever like when it's tiny and then it grows up in the sewer and then you go down in the sewer there's like a giant alligator when i was a kid there was a story uh about a lake near my house that everybody thought was made up you know people like oh you know there's an alligator that lives in that lake tiny tiny lake and this is not florida i grew up in california in a normal place where they don't have giant animals like that (laughs) Okay. No disrespect to Florida, but this would not be an interesting story if it were in Florida. I think we have a more of a cultural affinity. I mean, they are pretty adorable. I know they kill people. <laughs> Am I alone in thinking that hippos are a cute animal? I mean, I thought hungry, hungry hippos. Were cute. I could think of was like a, a robot chicken episode of cocaine hippos, like yes. chomping. Like, yes. Game. I mean, because when you hear that phrase, you assume. The hippos are doing cocaine. Yes, that's what I which, thought. Now, they're terrifying. Yeah. Uh, first of all, that's a lot of cocaine. Mm. The hippos are huge. <laughs> yes, so now all I can think about is hippos like doing a line. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. That's the aspect of the story that hasn't been explored yet. Right. Um, thanks to Paul for introducing this to us. We'll keep a close eye on it. Eming, uh, I-, I wanted to talk about artificial intelligence uh and the first this technocracy story that you sent about uh the president's executive order do you want to give us a little overview about this executive order promoting artificial intelligence i thought mel would want to because she like lost her brain over it (laughs) i did lose my brain go for it i'm gonna need some artificial intelligence um Okay, so I, thank you for, for sending this because I really geeked out on it. Um, first, I was kind of curious about why he would sign an executive order for artificial intelligence when what he really needs is real intelligence. That was my joke. Ha, 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 ha. Zing! And honestly, I mean, it's true because he was actually tweeting from Vietnam about Michael Cohen while he was supposed to be in negotiations with North Korea, so I just was which like, failed by the way. <laughs> he's <With> multitasking. <laughs> he was the, guy's, he's, the guy's got a lot of responsibilities, man. I think that's called distracted. Like he's worse than a millennial. <laughs> um, okay, so I, I so think anyways, offense to that comment, but okay. <laughs> well, I'm I'm a cusp. I'm a, I'm on the cusp. Apparently, according to my cousin, I'm not really Gen X. I'm. What do they call them? Millennialex? 
Yeah, I haven't heard that phrase, but that's <laughs> definitely how I identify. Because I, I always thought Gen X was the cool yeah. ones and I wanted to be a part of it, but it, I was like too young, you know? So I was like, really guys, wait up. Wait for yeah. me. I'm Gen X. And then <laughs> millennials came up and I was like, God, you guys are idiots. I don't want to be associated with you. Um, yeah, so so anyway, no so, offense, everybody. So then I, then I became even more interested because I would like we were saying I think before we started the talk was that it was it was actually some interesting news in between all the messes that we've been reading about and um, but then you read a little further and um, he signed this executive order because Jim Mattis who used to be the defense secretary he was the one who sent a memo to the White House imploring the president to create a national strategy on AI. So this is all about war and defense, right? It's not about science. So I wanted to know. Well, science read- is about war and defense. You know, we invented the I Internet know. for nuclear war. So it's not like those things are not separate. There's a lot of overlap there. I know it, obviously. But when when you read that headline, did you think immediately it had to do with defense or was it more about geeky, like like just um, yeah? I mean, I think maybe I was funding funding some fellowships. I mean, we have the space force happening too. Of course, it's going to be about defense. Yeah, I just okay. So there, that just shows my naivete because I didn't I didn't the Cylons are coming, people. That <laughs> the story would be about that. So then I thought it's actually a cross article or a cross it crosses verticals. Because it's not just technocracy. I think I thought it was also cell migration because um, ultimately, um, you know, a defense secretary who cares about AI is thinking about facial recognition, body Mm -hmm. cameras, surveillance um, and all the shit that cops are basically using right now for AI racial profiling. And I didn't know if you guys had already talked about this in another episode that maybe I wasn't on. Um, it made me think about the dataism guy um, who's talking about the totalitarian regimes that are being assisted by AI right now. Um, and it makes sense in the article that it mentions that China is like way ahead of us in some ways in artificial intelligence because their whole political system depends on this kind of big brother you know, mentality of being able right. to just like scan your face process you, you know, and you're just like one of their units. Um, so yeah, there's like, there's a lot in there. Um, and the final thing that it made me do was go to ethicalmarkets.com, which is the website of, um, my one of my mentors who does a lot of writing about artificial intelligence and bias and algorithms. And she used to um, serve on an office of technology assessment between 1975 and 1996 before Congress dismantled it. What a great time to dismantle it, right? Because 1996 was right when internet was coming up. And so of course now we don't have any, office in government to actually think about technology, which is crazy. Um, Anyways, so she features an article on her website by the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, um, and it was published last month. And it said, you know, around the world, AI systems are showing their potential for abetting repressive regimes 
and appending the relationship between citizens and state, thereby accelerating a global resurgence of authoritarianism. So it sounds like a super duper paranoid story that I want to write. <laughs> but there's all this interesting data, like from different thoughts of, you know, schools of thoughts, you know, like there's the this peace endowment, Carnegie Endowment for Peace talking about it. There's, um, you know, defense secretary talking about it. And now the president, you know, is finally signing executive orders. So I just find it to be a really heavy story. And I don't even know how I would start writing anything about this, but, um, but I, that's, that's, that's some of the stuff that I was thinking about. I mean, I think when I first heard about it, I was excited. You know, sometimes I have to divorce this president. Like I have to think like, what if somebody else said this? Like, you know, when you're really Uh annoyed by somebody, it's like, like everything they do is annoying to you, but you're like, Oh, if somebody else had done that, I probably wouldn't take issue with it. You know? Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So for instance, like if it was like, you know, President Obama today announced space force, I'd be like, Oh, that sounds tight. (laughs) I was like, I want a space force. Like, that's like exactly what I wanted to do when I was a kid. Like, we should definitely have a space force. That's sick, you know. But, you know, because it's like President Trump announces space force. I was like, you idiot. What are you talking about, man? Space really? force. You think Obama would did, have done that? Really? It, but, but did it sound like that's what I was saying? Because I, I wasn't trying to say it that way. No, no. I think you're smart to consider the source. I'm like always trying to go the other direction and like think objectively about something, you know, the the aspect, you know, I use the Space Force example because that was like my actual response. This promoting artificial intelligence. uh, I'm not surprised at all that it's military. That wasn't the first place that my mind went. The first place that my mind went actually um, was I heard something on the radio today. There's a journalist. was writing about Mike Pompeo and his relationship with the president. And I guess Mike Pompeo was really good at like um, helping, you know, initially it was really hard for people like from the CIA, like intelligence agencies to meet with the president. Cause the president was like, didn't want to listen to him. It was like bored. It's like, whatever, you know? So I guess Mike Pompeo was good at like wrangling these meetings and like helping the president do president things. Mm-hmm. And one of the things the journalist said is that whenever um, President Trump is having a meeting with someone like in the in- intelligence or anybody, anyone giving him a debriefing or talking about like, oh, here's why this country is an important ally or here's why like NATO is good. You know, he's like he always has what are called the four questions. Oh, I saw that. <laughs> and you saw this. I, I, so yeah, the four the, the, the four questions are why should I care? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it should be my uh, questions for everything. Yeah, what's in it for me? <laughs> my favorite. Can somebody else do it? <laughs> oh my god! Oh, those are actually good questions. Yeah. And number four, how much does it cost? Right. Uh, which I thought, I mean, it's such a like a profound insight into this guy man and and his thinking process so i love the idea of like matt is saying like all right you know we need to really seriously think about artificial intelligence uh you know china is really far ahead of us this is the future if we want to be smart about planning our defense strategies and trump saying why should i care What's in it for me? Can somebody else do it? How much do these robots cost? 
which well, was the second thing I thought when I saw this headline. You know, I think okay. your analysis is like much more sound and intellectual, and like you're really considering the, all the bad places this could go and helping to contextualize what does tyranny look like in the 21st century. And I was like, yo, but think no, about how funny it was. I, no, <laughs> yeah. I think I was going in a really paranoid direction. Like, I think yeah. you're calling it intellectual, but as I kept writing, I was like, I am. I look like I'm. I'm writing some paranoid shit here. It didn't. It didn't feel like I was gonna write anything that was useful. Yeah. <laughs> but but one thing that I did want to riff off of with those four questions was: Did you guys see? Also, um, I think Colbert, both Colbert and um, what's his name from South Africa. What, the guy from The Daily Show? Yeah. Yes. Trevor Noah. Trevor yeah. Noah. Trevor Noah. There we go. They both, in different shows, said that um, the briefers have to start singing to him in order to get him to listen. Because <laughs> he's he when he was talking about the state, this latest state of emergency, he was like, and then they're going to take me to court, and then they're going to do this, and da 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 Did you see that when Trump no, was no, I haven't seen like it. that? Yeah. Yeah. So he he actually talks like that in like four different places. Like they recorded him in different speeches <laughs> where he delivers, and I was like, oh, he almost sounds like a Latino. Does that mean does that mean Trump is also a Chicano for that reason? Can he? Yes. Good way to bring it back. <laughs> well, I would love it if he were a Japanese Chicano. Yes. Oh God! More specifically, well, he no, never mind. What? No, no, I was gonna make a comment, but it might c- c- come off kind of racist, so I stopped myself. <laughs> myself real quick on that yeah. one. Uh, I wanted to mention before we go, and, and we might be able to do a whole episode on this. Just something very funny, an, an exchange that Josue and I had today, uh, because we're reading the same book. We didn't know it. Oh, bestie. I know. It's very romantic. <laughs> this, like, this... like, wait, by accident? <laughs> yeah, we by didn't plan it. Have, like a book club. Oh. No, no, we didn't plan it. This was a total accident. I mean, we ask each other wow. for book recommendations all the time, but this, he sent me a photo today. He's like, are you, are you reading this? Well, actually what he said is, bruh, is you fucking with this dude? <laughs> and then <laughs> he sent me a picture of the book. I love that we have both Paul and Josue's voices in this show that they're doing here. I really appreciate that. Uh, So it's a a book called Go Ahead in the Rain, Notes to a Tribe Called Quest. It's written by a guy named Hanif Abdurraqib. Have you guys heard of this book? No. No. It's great. It's a memoir uh, about a guy who's my age and loved hip-hop in the 90s and all about how much he loved A Tribe Called Quest, but it's also a very political memoir. He talks a lot about... Uh, he grew up in... I forget if it's Cleveland. He grew up in Ohio, urban urban Ohio. I'm not sure if it was Cleveland or Cincinnati. Um, and he talks about his experiences as a young person, as a young black man witnessing Rodney King and the subsequent riots while listening to A Tribe Called Quest. You know, it's a lot about identity and music. It's a good way to write a memoir. Um, but we discovered that we were both reading it at the same time. Wow. Uh, and That's so romantic. 
It is. Well, this comes in the context of he and I were sending each other like a song every day, like back and forth, <laughs> like making. <laughs> oh my god! I can't we're more. yeah. Josue and I are in a long distance relationship. <laughs> you everybody. are. You have been. <laughs> so we basically wrote our own review of the book, even though we're both only halfway through as as a text conversation. So I want to read you guys some excerpts from this, just so it you know what's good. going on. Yeah. Um, so I said, I'm halfway through it right now, my guy. Uh, I'm wondering if I, <laughs> I wonder if I should read these mes- messages verbatim or if I should like. <laughs> Please read it verbatim. Please. Okay. All right. All right. No, I'll start no from editing. the beginning. I'll start from the beginning. Bruh, is you fucking with this dude? And this is me. Haha, I'm halfway through it right now, my guy. And Josue, Josue responds, well, I can't say my guy. What's wrong? With- All right. <laughs> no, keep, keep, please keep going. Come, come. He says, you like? And I wrote back, yeah, it's a cool concept. I'm not blown away necessarily, but I'm enjoying it. And he said, I'm also enjoying it. He's a nerd, but a cool nerd. And he has refreshed my tribe love and hip hop love without being too gushy. Uh, I like that it's about tribe, but about everything else too. And I made the point of saying, yeah, I'm down with cool nerds. I think that's our strength as creative peeps. Uh, he definitely got me listening to Tribe again, appreciating them in a new way. And this is when the literary criticism comes in. Said my issue was with that the connections between Tribe and everything else weren't that clear or earned, which is kind of true in the book. But um, he'll write a lot about a Tribe Called Quest, and you learn about these different albums, and he'll talk about his relationship to the music, and um, kind of like force a relationship with you know, something that's happening in popular culture that he's experiencing that I didn't always think was necessarily earned. Um, and then I talked about, you know, I'm a writer, so I was critical of his actual writing. But I was careful to say, I'm not being a hater. I'm just giving my full and honest answer because that's how you and me get down. Uh, and then I made a joke. <laughs> you guys, the best part of this story is not a, the cute way that Josue and I talk to each other over text it messages, is, right? It is. It so is. <laughs> it's the best thing. All right. So Josue, the whole point of this is to say that Josue's theory was that, you know, he and I are critical of this book because we grew up with this music and we're both creative people and we're in a certain generation. And his argument was that the audience uh, for this book, he thinks, is young people who did not grow up with tribes. So he has to kind of like over explain things. And it talks about like kids kind of like wokiness and like cool things from the 90s are being like, quote, rediscovered, you know. <laughs> It's true, but you know, I think that's because you know he works with a lot of young. There's a lot of intergenerational stuff going on because it's a lot of like young woke kids that he's working with, and he's from a different generation of activism. Mm -hmm. um, Wait, so how old is the author? He's you know my well, I won't say my age because then I have to reveal my age. He's Josue's age. I didn't know your and, age. And ho- you are not Hos- that old. Stop acting like you're a dinosaur. Russell, you are ageless. Hos- you are Thank classic. You. Oh, please Thank don't you. inflate it no more. Vampire. Oh my god. Oh. Uh, this is great. I'm, I'm an I'm an Stop anthropologist. It. I'm an ageless anthropologist. Oh my god. <laughs> Thank you. This is never going to I came to the right place, you guys. Thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, my God. So when Josue started to say that, you know, I expressed some of his criticisms, I said, I try not to hate on the youngsters because I don't want to be a grouchy old man. But I agree with you on this point. Um, And he's and Josue said he's talking about it to kids who were born after 9-11. Now, which is an interesting kind of like cultural snapshot 
uh, I thought that, and I, and I actually wrote this message, that the kids of the generation that came up with Black Lives Matter wouldn't be that moved necessarily by the, by the saga of Rodney King just because there have been there was such a rapid succession of really traumatic events that were uh, essentially murders, you know, homicides, people were killed. Um, And this relates to what we talk a lot about news cycle and how desensitized sometimes we come to events like this. And now I get to tell my story, which is I wrote to Josue and I said, as I once overheard Jesse Jackson say in a bar in Chicago, quote, Every day is 9-11. Did I ever tell you guys that story when I met Jesse Jackson? <laughs> and, he, no. and he said, and he said, every day is 9-11? He no. said that to your face. You're very good with the story, by the way. He did. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to keep you guys. Well, you were really interested in me and Josue sending cute text messages back and forth. I was at a bar in Chicago. Uh, it's called the Billy Goat Tavern. They have really great burgers. Uh, and it was not crowded. There was no event going on, but Jesse Jackson was there having some kind of you know, Chicago guy, having a meeting with someone. I didn't go up to him. I didn't say anything. I just thought, oh, that's cool. You know, I saw Jesse Jackson. Uh, and when we were walking out, I was kind of looking to get one last glance of Jesse. And I was walking out the front door and there's like a little area in between like the front door and then the actual exit. And Jesse Jackson was in there talking on the phone. And I walked right past him. Like, we're, you know, our faces were inches from each other. And he said into the phone, yeah, well, every day is 9-11. <laughs> and that's all I heard from that conversation. And then I just walked outside. I was like, oh, my, did you hear what he said? And I had to tell everybody I was with that Jesse Jackson said every day is 9-11. Um, and at the time, uh, you know, we had all kinds of theories about what that might mean, you know. But now, when I think about it in the context of Hosea versus a younger generation, what it means to come up in the age of terror and the 21st century and, you know, uh, like digital natives, uh, like not like news cycle tragedy, that we're exposed to so much tragedy and trauma every day and like such a such a rapid fire that there's like an increased desensitization to it. Um, I'm not the first person to say that, but I, I think that's the point that Josue was making and the point that I was making um, yeah. that, you know, and I don't say that to be apocalyptic or anything or to say that I, I think that the world is in a worse place than it was, you know, 20 years ago. Cause I, I think that's not necessarily true. I just think the way that we experience the world is so different and there's so many people competing for our attention uh, and what really, what, gets people's attention a lot of times is drama and tragedy that we're just like hit with tragic stories all the time that can desensitize us. But I, you know, I like the book. I, I'd love to find a way to get Josue on so that we could talk about the book on the air because there are a lot of things for us to discuss. I was, you know, part, I like the book. I was partly critical of it because I'm a writer and because I love music and because I love hip hop and I love a tribe called quest. And uh, probably a part of it is jealousy to be a writer reading, you know, somebody who had a really good idea. You know, but there's a lot in there. There's a lot to unpack. It's it's the it's the Japanese cholo of books. You know, it'll give, us, it'll give us a lot. Well, it gives it'll give us a lot to talk about. You know, it's not just like, oh, my God, I love this book. Let's move on. Uh, OK, so we've touched on a lot of important things tonight. Cocaine hippos, Japanese cholos and Jesse Jackson, who once said every day is 9-11. <laughs> It's going to be hard to write this headline because everything we talked about is its own headline. 
but I want to thank uh, all of you for being here. Melanie, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, as always, to Eming, our producer. Uh, thanks to our listeners. Until next time, quest on, everybody. This episode of Quest On Media's Margin Call was produced in Richmond, California. 